Will God forgive me? A question people often wrestle with after they failed. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor. There is a guilt trip that the world loves to give when you fail and when you fall that isn't from the Lord at all. The world doesn't accept failure, weakness, or stumbling. But God is the God of the second chances, and he uses even our weaknesses. And he rearranges our lives to put us at the right place at the right time for what he's doing in our lives. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Mark it, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is amazing grace. We all sin, and when it happens, we go through a wide range of emotions, from guilt and remorse to even anger with ourselves or others. But God is looking for repentance. We'll see what that looks like in a human heart as we open Psalm 51. This was uttered by David after his sin with Bathsheba and murder cover-up. So if you're finding it difficult to move on after you've sinned, I think you'll find this helpful. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. He says in verse 13, Then how teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. David sees a future, because with repentance there's a future. And David's already, in the, by the time he ends up his psalm, he's already trusting the Lord to cleanse him and forgive him, and he already sees that through this he's going to be a teacher. And in order to be a teacher, you have to be a what? A learner, a student, that's right. And unfortunately, David has been a student in the school of sin, an unrepentant sin, an unconfessed sin, and all the complications that we've looked at in previous studies. And as a student of the whole situation and recognizing that God is gonna be so gracious to him and so wonderful to him that even that, no matter what the consequences might be and whatever, he's not even thinking about that. He knows this can't just be covered up. He knows, he's already experienced the consequences. He already knows as he's writing this, he's like, oh man. But what does he say? I'm gonna be a teacher. People are gonna learn from my life. And you know what? Verse 13 could even be prophetic, right? Are you learning from his sin? Yes. We're all learning from his sin and repentance. It's all a warning to us. Sinners are gonna be converted to you. It could very well be that's the prophecy for you right now. That by the time we leave today, you are going to embrace the love of Jesus Christ in your life. Sinners are going to be converted. Why? Because we're studying David's life. And you recognize that there's a God in heaven that loves you too. That if you confess your sins, if you confess and repent and turn from your sins, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And over and over again, this horrific episode in David's life has still been used by God to convert sinners. He says, deliver me, verse 14, from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Now, now that he's got it right with the Lord, now he's like, yes, yes, there is an element of my salvation. 
My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He's finally going to get to sing again. Previously in David's life, he was so excited worshiping God, he was dancing. He was dancing and rejoicing, so much so that his wife despised him. He was so happy in the Lord, so excited. He was dancing in his undergarments, so excited for what God has done in his life. He's looking forward to that again. I don't know about dancing in his undergarments, but singing again. Making what might, people might think as he, he's a fool for Christ, but really what he was is just so enraptured with the Lord, he didn't care what people thought. It didn't matter to him. Oh Lord, open my lips, verse 15, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. You do not desire sacrifice or else I'd give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you won't despise. Until you have a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, you haven't arrived where David has. The pathway to a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart begins with your understanding that your sin is against God and him alone. God is looking for brokenness. He's looking for humility. He's not looking for excuses. He's not looking for reasons. He's not looking for blame. He's looking for brokenness. He's looking for a humble heart. The idea behind the word contrite, we don't use that very much, but I believe it's important to define it. It literally means to break in pieces. He's looking for a crushed heart. Why? Because of what someone else did? No. Because of your own sin and mine. A broken heart. I've learned over the years, in my own life personally, whether it's my sin or the sin of someone else that's close to me, that God is able to break a heart. He's able. He's able to allow circumstances. You know, if we won't bow the knee to him, he'll allow circumstances that our knees will bow. That's what he's looking for. It's like a dad who disciplines his kids. A dad that disciplines his kids, does he love his kids? Of course. As a matter of fact, if you never experienced discipline, there was a lack of love. And God is looking for that in your life. So whether he'll use the circumstances of your own sin, he'll use situations around you, but this is what he's looking for, a broken spirit. Don't think of it as like God crushing you to destroy you. Think of it this way, God allowing circumstances or he himself intervening to crush your flesh so that you'll die to yourself. Any part of your flesh that hurts is flesh that's still alive. Any of your flesh that rises up is flesh that's still alive and not broken or in contrite, in a place of contriteness, of broken to pieces. After David's horrific sin, God opened doors of sharing his testimony. And David reminds us that the, in Psalm 34, he says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such that has a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. In Psalm 147, verse 2, it says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And like I've said, I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen it in others. I've also seen resistance. I've also seen prideful fights. I've also seen the opposite of a broken heart. Instead, it's a prideful heart. 
a heart that's not moldable before the Lord. But don't think that God isn't able to work uh, a work of brokenness in a hard heart. He can do that too. <laughs> it's a lot more painful because you got the issue of the broken heart and then you got the issue of the rebellion where you're not really at Psalm 51 yet. You know, just think back to the last time you truly repented. Did it sound like Psalm 51? Can you write it and can you say, that's me, that's me, that, sound, that came out of my lips, that's how I felt? Can you actually say that that was you because this was a good guide for those, what happens in that release of confession where David's restored and he begins to pray for God's glory. He, look at verse 18. By the end of the psalm, he's already talking about man. Do good. He's not talking about his sin anymore because God's dealt with him. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. You will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offerings, and they shall offer bowls on your altar. There'll be worship again, Lord. Man, there'll be worship, the glory of God in Jerusalem. Before we leave, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We've looked at this in depth in previous studies, but let's survey it very quickly because David in the New Testament teaches us another facet of confession and repentance that we cannot overlook. I believe I would be an unfaithful pastor if I overlooked this in the context of Psalm 51, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and the idea of repentance. This is what Paul, this is how Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is what he says. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. So Paul actually wrote them hard words, and it hurt their feelings. And Paul says, I don't regret that, but... Though I did regret it, I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, but only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. That you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow, mark this, you know you have godly sorrow when it produces repentance to salvation. That is godly sorrow. Brokenness, contriteness. That's godly sorrow. Not to be regretted. You'll never regret godly sorrow. Psalm 51. But the sorrow of the world produces death. It continues to separate. It continues to defile. It continues to do great damage. The main reason that removed Paul's regret in writing the difficult letter was that God used it to bring about godly sorrow. A sorrow that led to real spiritual change. Let me tell you something. No leader, no pastor, no parent wants to have that difficult conversation. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I want to have a difficult conversation over the sin of someone or over a real hard situation or, you know, where were you last night? Or no one really, I haven't, I mean, I, I don't know that I've met anyone. I can't say I've never met anyone, but I don't know that I've met anyone. I know I don't wake up that way. Like, I can't, how many hard conversations are you going to lead me into today? I can't wait, Lord. That is my calling. I need to face it. I need to be obedient, but I don't like it. And I understand what Paul says. Man, I, I mean, I'm sorry we have to have this. But you know, you know, it was good because it brought about godly sorrow. It's good. God used it. It's good that way. It's one thing to be sorry and sad about sinning or being caught or sad as you face consequences, that's normal. But does the sorrow lead you all the way to real change? That's the question. 
course you get caught, or of course something happens. Of course you're not. No, who's going to feel good about that? But Paul says you've got to look at this. You've got to be careful because there's two kinds of sorrow. And they, the, the danger is they often look and feel the exact same. Same tears, same crying, same pain, but there's a big difference. Number one, there is godly sorrow, and number two, there's worldly sorrow. Another way we could say this is, number one, there's spiritual sorrow that has the glory of God in mind, and the other is a fleshly sorrow that only has ourselves. Worldly sorrow tends to hover around the immediate. I'm sure if we were to survey those in jail today or facing a judge, those facing consequences, they could probably say, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. Please go lenient on me because I'm very sorry I got caught. And I want to get out of this as fast as I can because I'm sorry I got caught. They're sorry they got incarcerated. Yeah, that makes sense. Anytime I got in trouble with the law, I was very sad about it. I didn't like it. I didn't like paying the fines. I didn't like doing the time. I didn't like having to, I didn't like any of it. I was sorry. I look back, I go, man, I would have wanted to avoid that. But it never led to any change in my life. Maybe for a little bit, I changed for a little bit. I did go sober for a little bit or try to stay out of trouble for a little bit or try to be extra nice for a little bit and it always wore off and I did a worse thing the next time and a worse thing the next time. And it wasn't until I surrendered myself and my life to Jesus Christ where he gave me new life that everything changed. It completely changed. I had a brand new sorrow in my life. I wasn't just sorry that I got caught. I was sorry I I hurt my wife so bad. I was sorry I made my dad cry. I still get sorry about that now. And there's nothing I can do about it. My dad forgave me a long time ago, but I hate that day. I, can, I was just sharing my testimony with one of the high schoolers earlier today. She's putting a video on that she's gonna do a video for her school. And, and so she was asking me questions about my testimony. And it's a video on alcohol and drugs because it's very prevalent in her school. And I'm just, as I'm sharing it, I'm like, man, I don't like those memories. I like the way the video ended. You know, she asked the question, how are you now? I'm like, well, by the grace of God, I'm doing a lot better 20-something years later. Clean and sober, living for God, helping to change lives, helping to see families rescued. That is so much better. You see, you can't confuse worldly sorrow with, with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow tends to progress us into the spiritual. Godly sorrow is very well summed up in Psalm 51. There are many of the same feelings involved in godly sorrows, worldly sorrow, the same feelings of regret, the same feelings of, of, of not wanting, you know, if you had the choice again, you wouldn't do it. Godly sorrow leads us not toward destruction, though, but toward life. There is a guilt trip that the world loves to give when you fail and when you fall that isn't from the Lord at all. The world doesn't accept failure, weakness, or stumbling. But God is the God of the second chances and he uses even our weaknesses and he rearranges our lives to put us at the right place at the right time for what he's doing in our lives. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Mark it, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It's through our weakness. Understand that the church is the household of the Lord. And in the house of the Lord, he just doesn't let everything slide. That's not true godly sorrow. The Lord doesn't condone worldliness 
or worldly behavior in your life and mine. And it's in our repentance that our heart changes about sin and God confronts sin in our lives. And you could say that he uses even tough love in our lives. He loves us that much. And as we saw in Psalm 51, we see exactly what David felt. We see exactly what he felt. It's heart-wrenching. How would you like to sin and have the whole world know forever recorded for you in writing all the little things behind the scenes? How would you like just one episode of your life to be used as an illustration up here? And we just put your picture up there. Oh, yeah, I know. And if they, well, I don't know who it is. We bring you up. Here she is, right here. This is him. And let's just go through the pathway of their destructive life. And for the last nine months, they've been getting away with it. But then somebody sent them, I mean, just how would you, I mean, how would you like to sit on this chair? Having your whole life exposed. But that was David. That's what God did in David's life. There are innocent people that are hurt, and that hurts. There are people that are wrongly influenced, and that hurts. There's distance between you and God. That hurts. Then you make it worse by your mouth or by your action. That hurts. Now listen, if, to those of you that are even, even here, God is stirring up emotions in your heart right now. Remember, in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You shall not die. We mentioned already, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Uh, if you're right now thinking, oh no, what have I done? Then the prophet Joel gives you such a great encouragement. Listen, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. True repentance is always a work of God in the heart of the believer. So when God begins to convict you by his Holy Spirit, you begin to see the truth about your life. It brings about godly sorrow. You begin to repent. You say, God, I'm sorry. And it brings you to salvation, the forgiveness of it. You don't make excuses. You don't sidestep it. You're just like, this is the way it is. And I'm so glad I'm relieved. I'm so glad that you cleanse me. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you begin to live a new life. Please don't just settle. As you think of David and consider his story, don't just settle for feeling bad. Don't just settle for emotions and then shrugging it off. You now know that when the Spirit begins to bring conviction, one leads to life and the other leads to death. And Paul reminds them why he wrote to them that difficult word. David would say the same thing if he was writing today. Yeah, it was hard to see my whole life exposed like that. But if it leads people to salvation, God can even use the worst in my life to bring about the best in other people's lives. And he will, as we go on in our study, suffer the consequences. But one consequence he's not going to suffer, he only had to suffer it for nine months, was the consequence of unconfessed sin. He's not going to have to deal with that because he finally came clean because he had a good friend named Nathan. I hope you have a Nathan in your life. If you don't, pray for one. You go, what? I don't want to pray for no Nathan bringing me some message. Pray for one. You need one. You need someone to come up and start telling you a story that'll flip you out. You go, what? Kill that guy. You're the guy. Don't kill him. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's good that you can laugh under such a heavy message because 
God is looking for that inward cleanness in our heart. And none of us can really accomplish that without the work of the Spirit. We can't clean our own heart. We can't like change our behavior and will ourselves to holiness. The only thing we can do is fall upon the rock of Jesus Christ with a broken and a humble heart. And then you live authentic. And if that's what guys are into today, you know, the millennials are all into authenticity, then let's go for it and be real people, teaching the real gospel, living through real lives, and we'll reach the lost. I don't think it's just, you know, the, the newer generation. I think everyone appreciates truthfulness. When you could just, you know, there was a day when your handshake was all you needed. We certainly don't live in that day anymore, but that shouldn't be so among us as believers. We should be men and women of our word, living true, real lives that isn't, aren't going to be perfect. We're not going to be all whitewashed and, you know, hey, we're the perfect believers. None of us are perfect. No, not one. Not one. But for those of us that have been born again, we have the Spirit of God living in us. And we can rely upon him day by day. I was just sharing with someone this, just a couple, yesterday, yesterday in my email, a brother uh, shared with me some personal things that are going on in his life, and, and he's talking about the flesh and the spirit and the struggle and the battle. And, and I said, look, the best thing you can do and the best thing I can do is to abide in Jesus Christ right now, in the moment. Because when you're in the moment abiding in Jesus Christ, you're not in sin, you're not in the flesh, and you're actually enjoying relationship. And then you do it the next moment. And then you abide the next moment. You know, that consciousness of, the, of the, the living with the consciousness of God. Because you know what our life's made up? Of moments. One moment, two moments, a day's worth, a week's worth, a month's worth. And before you know it, your whole legacy that you leave to your grandkids, your kids or grandkids, your great-grandkids, is the sum collection of the moments of your life. Some moments we're not very proud of. But in Christ, we can have, we can tip the scale with the moments of abiding and the beauty of the forgiveness of God and to move forward with godly sorrow, broken hearts, contriteness. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace and a message titled Conviction, Confession, and Forgiveness. Hear it again online at calvaryaurora.org. Ed, I'm sure you've dealt with this often in counseling sessions. Someone comes to you on the heels of personal failure and sin, and they're finding it difficult to get beyond it and wonder if God will forgive them. This passage in Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel 12 sure reminds us that there is hope and forgiveness, doesn't it? It sure does, Larry, especially Psalm 51. Uh, It's known as the Psalm of Repentance from David, and he just shares where God brought him to the place of change. I mean, the, the issue of people that I often talk to after a service or in my office is their unwillingness to change so that condemnation and the weight of guilt becomes like a security blanket for them because deep down inside, they don't want to change. They want to continue to live in this lifestyle. They want to have, you know, as it's been said for proverbially, they want to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. But the freedom that you're looking for comes through repentance. I know repentance is a Bible word, but skateboarders would totally understand repentance if I talked to them about doing a 180. A 180, that means not, not 360 degrees, but 180 degrees where you're going in one direction and you turn around and go the exact opposite. For those of you that drive, we would call that a U-turn. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there is a, a ministry that's so effective in helping men and women get through their addictions. It's called You Turn for Christ. And that's what we need to have in our lives. No matter what the level of issue is, we need to continually live in a U-turn for Christ. So I would suggest anybody wrestling with these things, uh, definitely open up the Bible to Psalm 51 and allow the Holy Spirit to begin ministering His conviction, His love, and His ministry to help you walk through this, through repentance, coming back to a more fruitful relationship with Him. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to bringing Bible teaching to your station every day. And we rely on the support of our listeners to do that. And today, when you give a donation of $25 or more, we'll send you the book Radical Prayer by Manny Mill. So call 877-30-GRACE so we can get that right out to you. Let me also give you our mailing address, Abounding Grace, Post Office Box 460598, Aurora, Colorado, 80046. Next time on Abounding Grace, we'll continue Pastor Ed Taylor's study of 2 Samuel. Thank you for listening today, and we'll look for you tomorrow as we open the Word together in search of God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. Abounding Grace with Ed Taylor is presented by Calvary Chapel, Aurora.